There's no one at the Sun Valley level who would come to you and say, you know what, Linear's got a longer life. This thing's going to bounce back. Everyone knows it continues to be very lucrative, but it's a game of diminished returns. Welcome to the Powers That Beat Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly. It's Monday, December 19th. Today, Dylan Byers joins me for spirited discussion on the latest scandal bewitching the cable news industry and the leaders who've taken over from the legends before them. And we also talk about the latest element of the linear Big Bang, sports. What's going to happen as the NFL and NBA continually move their wares from linear to streaming? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily. I'm John Kelly, in for Peter Hamby, who's enjoying his own eat, pray, love vacation somewhere in the Greek Isles right now, running around shirtless with Ari Emanuel. Between now and his return, you'll have to deal with me and Ben Landy, and I'm thrilled to join you today on Monday with my colleague, Dylan Byers, whose work we often rip off on this Media Monday segment of the show. Dylan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's nice to be a part of the conversation. I'm going to going to talk to my lawyer about all the uh, the work you're cribbing for me on Media Mondays. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll save you the hourly fees. Um, but it's but it's good to have you in the room, so to speak, because there are uh, a number of things that I want to talk to you about as the year and 2022 was, it was a pretty brutal year in, in media and in particularly in the cable news industry, uh, which is your for specialty, if I may say so myself. And notably, you know, Chris Licht sort of had his time in the barrel for uh, a number of the unforced errors he made. And 
uh, MSNBC it, it enjoyed its own turmoil in the, the post-Mato era. Niraj uh, Kilmani, the uh, head of CBS News, also uh, got dinged, especially after he broke all that news about him trying to replace Nora O'Donnell with Brian Williams. Real party foul there. The one person who's remained uh, pristine in all this was Kim Godwin at ABC News. And of course, all of that has has changed in recent weeks with this alluring, unbelievable scandal uh, at, at GMA3, which is the, the third hour of Good Morning America. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what the sort of uh, agony and intrigue in, inside ABC News is these days, bringing in the Iger component as well. And also, like, I want to just talk a little bit about what's going on in cable news as uh, the linear Big Bang continues to hit and sort of hit again. Yeah, you know, the, the frustrations at ABC were longstanding. And it was really a case of, of a tree falling in, in the woods because we've done a lot of reporting on the biggest brands in news media over the course of the last year. Certainly CNN, The New York Times, points of interest, new things that are launching like Semaphore. As I was reporting on sort of all of the chaos and frustration happening at CNN, I got occasionally I would get a call from someone in the world of broadcast television at either ABC or CBS. And they would say, when are you going to write about the shit show in our shop? It was almost like good to know how it really works on the inside here. That's great. <laughs> Does anyone even care anymore about ABC News, about CBS News? Yes, these broadcasts continue to drive a lot of viewers. I mean, there are weeks in which, you know, David Muir's World News Tonight or whatever is the, is the most watched show outside of football. So they're significant in that regard, but they do not occupy the same place in in the culture, of course, that they used to. However, and perhaps because of that, the people who have been tasked with leading these organizations are increasingly folks who either feel like they're in over their head or just cannot fill out the shoes of what were once very august leadership roles. In ABC, you have this pseudo scandal that happens on the far fringes of television, on the, certainly on the far fringes of Disney. Does it really matter that two hosts had an extramarital affair. No, this is a story that that we will all forget about in a year. But what it did, the way it was handled, no one took any action and they were allowed to go back out on air and sort of decide for themselves how they were going to handle it. And then they handled it in a very sort of cringeworthy way, has sort of laid bare those longstanding frustrations with the leadership at ABC. These sort of mini scandals have a way of exposing larger problems. And certainly with Kim Godwin at ABC, and we we've, we detailed it in our reporting, but this idea that she's not really engaged, she's not a hands-on leader. Certainly there are echoes of, of the Chris Licht frustrations there, although he actually is a hands-on leader who's pretending to not be a hands-on leader. Anyway, these come to the fore, and they do at a time when Bob Iger has come back in charge of Disney. And of course, unlike Bob Chapek, Bob Iger is someone who grew up in the world of linear television, grew up in ABC, grew up under Rune Arledge, and actually cares deeply about the television news product, not as a top priority. He's got a thousand other things that are more important to him right now, but he cares in it about it the way sort of Rupert Murdoch continues to care about print newspapers. I think she is going to be under scrutiny again in a way that she 
she was not in a time when no one, even seemingly the boss of Disney at the time, seemed to care all that much about what was happening at the news division. The scandal here is just stupid, right? Amy Robach and TJ Holmes, two people I'd never heard of before you call them to my attention, host the third hour of Good Morning America, uh, an hour of television that only exists because there's advertiser leakage interest from the the, the Stephanopoulos uh, part of the show. And they're having an affair, which happens not totally unfrequently in television. And basically the scandal here is that Godwin didn't pull them off the air in time and then they made a stupid apology. You had a great piece called In Godwin's Country that just makes me laugh with sort of delight and more than a bit of cynicism is part of what makes television news so fascinating is it is a ostensibly serious business populated by people who wear makeup and look into a camera and read off cue cards, right? There's vanity and intellectualism combined in one place and it is dying. And it was dying slowly and and, and now with much more rapidity, it's vicious. And I think that that's one of the the details that came out of this Godwin frenzy and and it's going to lead us to our next topic of conversation. The amount of leaking is brutal. We used to see it in the old kind of Pollyannish days in leaks about ratings. People from Fox would be planting stories about how well Tucker did or how poorly someone in CNN did. But now as the industry really does begin to sort of go through this phase of diminishing uh, in, in broad daylight, these little things just become nastier and nastier. And there's been this quiet leadership transition in the last couple of years, and you've remarked on it really, really well, where we've gone from the sort of Andy Lack, Phil Griffin, Jeff Zucker, James Golson, Ben Sherwood era to a era of much more anonymous people, who uh, many of whom are financially minded. You wrote a great piece called uh, <laughs> The Kids Stay in the Picture about them. Noah Oppenheim, many know, is, is, is not long for this world. He seems to be um, perpetually kind of rapturously called back to Hollywood. What gives? You know, is this just an industry getting smaller with uh, a, a smaller talent pool at the top? Or is a, is a, a signal being sent by the Iger level that they want to have these executives in charge to really manage the decline? I think it is a sign of the diminished power and influence and magic of what that industry used to be. Look, there's no one at the Sun Valley level who would come to you and say, you know what, this thing's going to bounce back from Hollywood to Silicon Valley to New York. Everyone knows that this business is declining. It continues to be very lucrative, but it's, it's a game of diminished returns. It's just increasingly a less significant part of the business. And I think that the brightest and certainly the most competitive minds in the creative programming journalism space, they are seeking elsewhere. They're trying to figure out what things are going to look like 5, 10, 15 years down the road and thinking about that. The last people to sort of understand the decline of this business, coincidentally enough, are the the people who sort of continue to work there. And you, you mentioned, you know, people used to leak ratings. CNN still has people who tout a single ratings win or who spin a ratings loss to make it look like a ratings win. And even when you can't, you can't polish that. And they do it anyway. It's like they are fighting over this incredibly small piece of the pie. The only network out there that deserves to really brag about its ratings is Fox News. And that is not by virtue of the fact that television still matters. It's by virtue of the fact that their audience is extremely old and they have cornered the market on conservatives, on Republicans. Kudos to the Murdochs for doing that. Whether or not that you actually want to call what they're doing news is a debatable point. But in that familiar space of the CBSs, the ABCs, the NBCs, and CNN, the audience is paltry. 
And so they, for some reason, don't seem to understand that. And they're still fighting over it. And old habits die hard. But the people at the top certainly understand it. They're putting people in power who are not the impresarios uh, that their predecessors were. The tension lies in the fact that a lot of the people who work at these organizations are veterans, are lifers. They are people who remember the glory days. They remember the impresarios and their entire lives have been about being competitive in this space, about working extra hours, pulverizing the competition, getting the first scoop, getting the first exclusive. And now they have leaders who don't really seem to care about any of that and who are sort of just in the business, like you said, of managing the decline. And it is it makes these places very depressing places to work. We're going to take a quick break, Dylan, and then we're going to come back afterwards with another somewhat depressing but uh, news-filled linear storyline. All right, Dylan, welcome back. We're going to segue here from news over to sports. These were consider the the two last bastions of linear. And then really in the last like six months, there's been this sort of industry-wide reckoning that sports is making the same pivot that drama and comedy made, you know, 10 or 15 years earlier to streaming. The NFL has had a lot of success with their Amazon program. The NBA, uh, when its rights go up, seems like it's probably going to cut out a, a wedge for uh, a streamer in addition to, you know, ESPN and and possibly, uh, I presume, that the Turner assets. I know Zaslov said he doesn't need the NBA, but I, I think that he will pivot off of that position. Soccer does incredibly well on streaming. Hockey does well. You've been poking around here a lot, especially uh, with ESPN. And uh, I'm curious sort of how you're seeing executives reconfigure what sports and streaming look like together. It's this really difficult paradox because you want to make the jump to streaming. You want to start investing heavily in that. But you've got this lucrative linear business over here. And the thing that is keeping it lucrative and the thing that the reason it is a business that you can't untether yourself from is largely because of sports. So despite the inexorable decline of linear that we talk about all the time, sports is very much keeping that afloat. The challenge here, certainly for the traditional media companies, is that the leagues have all of the leverage and they are driving the prices higher and higher. And that is increasingly putting the legacy companies in a position where they just can't compete. One thing that I've followed closely this year are the negotiations over the NFL Sunday ticket, which will no longer be on DirecTV. ESPN wanted that. ESPN looked at that. They got into the negotiations. And then the price tag just hit a point that they could not justify because sports are very, especially the expensive ones like football, are a loss leader. And in the old days, you could say, okay, we're going to pay more than we should for the game on Sunday, but we're going to market the hell out of every single thing we got coming Monday through Friday, and we'll make our money there. With the declining total addressable market for linear, that is increasingly not a good value proposition and not one that ESPN felt like it could justify. Apple could do it, but it doesn't want to. And so now you've got Amazon and Google, and that's sort of where these rights are going to go. I think when we, like you mentioned, the NBA, I think when we get there, it's going to be we're going to be hearing a lot about what Google wants, what, what Amazon wants. Certainly Apple's making investments in soccer. They might up their investment in baseball if they can figure out a way to make baseball relevant again. It's just a hard landscape for all of these guys. You know, I think about Bob Iger coming back to Disney. I am so eager to see if he's 
going to keep ESPN, which was the decision that Chapek came to after considering a spinoff. How do you get more aggressive about putting the big sports games that people actually want to watch on ESPN Plus so you can drive subscriptions there without undermining the revenue that you very much need from the linear business? And that I have no good answers to that question. Well, one thing that I think has been underappreciated is the extent to which the leagues have really wanted to experiment here. There was this fictionalized narrative, as I've come to understand it, that they wanted to stay on cable because they wanted their their uh, product to be as widely accessible as possible. I spent some time with someone who at the very top of one of these leagues not long ago who evidenced the the serious long-term curiosity to experiment. And I think that they, they may have recognized that the, the streamers needed time and resources to, to be able to, to appropriately do a sports production at the level that the fans require of it. But the only challenge I see for the leagues moving forward is running the risk of getting greedy and, um, and doling out their product to, to multiple streamers. You know, because you can imagine how they used to just basically go to a, a couple of options. And, and we're so primed, uh, especially with the NFL, and maybe especially you and I, Dylan, to know like, okay, the one o'clock game is going to be on CBS and the national game of 430 is on Fox and there's the NBC or Peacock. In the future, you can imagine a somewhat messy user experience where they're putting some games on Netflix, some games on Paramount Plus, some games on Apple, some in a multi-multi-streamer universe that's going to create a, a sort of rancid user experience. But I also imagine that we're walking towards a world where there are going to be fewer streamers than there are now in, in three years. And I think a lot of these leagues are making bets. I think they're making bets that something funny happens on the way to the forum with Warner Brothers Discovery and, and Comcast, NBCU, you know, at, at some point or, you know, with Paramount Global in there. And they're trying to figure out who to place long-term on. And I think they're picking the most clear, long-term-minded brands now. But once this shakes out, I imagine that they will divvy up their products even more. And eventually, consumers will feel totally comfortable watching sports on streaming and, and not missing a beat when it comes to the, those, you know, Levitro commercials or, or whatever, <laughs> thinners and, and erectile dysfunction, and wh- whatever else you see during a, a, an NFL game with, with Ford advertising. From a user experience, the cleanest, most seamless experience is going to be in sports is probably going to be MLS on Apple because they're going to have rights to the entire league. They're going to be able to stream every single game that's happening. You're going to jump into one platform and pick. The reason that something like that can happen, of course, is because the MLS is not the NFL. It is. It, it has a fraction of the fans. It, it's not a business the way the NFL is. And the NFL wants exactly what you're talking about. Think about it. Every partner they have, it's not just expanding the audience. It's expanding the marketing. All of a sudden, Fox, CBS, ESPN, Amazon, everyone is out there continuing to market your product and building ancillary shows and and merchandise and everything around it. And so they do want to split up that pie as much as they can. And that doesn't always create a a great user experience. If, If you're toggling back and forth between CBS and Fox, that's fine. But when you got to jump in and out of various streaming services, I think that's going to be a real problem. And I do think that all of the leagues are very curious about this streaming play, but I don't think they know exactly where or how to place their bets yet. And even with Amazon, you know, look, when they took Thursday Night Football exclusively, it seemed like this sort of really landmark moment pretending a future of an all-streaming NFL. But let's not forget, they've got the Thursday Night game, which is very often the worst game of the week. The leagues are very much just sort of like dipping their toes 
And when these rights come up again in seven to 10 years, I think the whole landscape is going to have changed pretty dramatically. One group of sort of secret winners may be, and you're already seeing the, the, the race to get there, these more niche leagues, like the leagues that Ari Emanuel owns, the bull riding and um, mixed martial arts, and, and this, this major league pickleball, that league that, that Tom Brady and LeBron are involved in. If you think about how soccer and hockey, which was basically sequestered to like, you know, NBC Sports Network and Channel One Million for all these years, they're, they're thriving on streaming. So it's going to be interesting to see how these niche sports do. I wonder if uh, one of them eventually uh, makes the the deal to, to sign Live Golf. That'll be an interesting threshold to see if we ever cross. They're, they're like on Facebook Live now, but I imagine that um, somewhere down the line, somebody may blink there, but uh, it's unclear. Anyway, this, this is certainly the direction that it's heading. Yeah. And, the, you know, the niche sports thing is interesting because, and I, I was talking with a media executive recently who um, spends a lot of time talking to the leagues and thinking about sports rights and, and what sports rights they want, which ones they don't. And um, there are two schools of thought here. One is the safe play, which is the NFL is the NFL and college football is college football. And that's where you need to be because that's where the eyeballs are. And, and you know, forget about the costs. We're going to make it work. The other school of thought is is about that niche thing. Can you because there's growth there, right? And so something that is little that is relatively little watched, whether it be MLS or pickleball or whatever you want, is there potential there? Is there potential for that sort of you know Netflix F one drive to survive moment where all of a sudden, overnight, seemingly everyone you know has a favorite F one racer, right? Who, who who like didn't even couldn't even tell you what F one stood for, just six months earlier. Is there potential for that to happen? And I think that's why you see people who don't want to play the fool's game with football where they have no power, no leverage, placing bets on, on smaller leagues where they see real potential for growth. For me, as a reporter anyway, that will be as interesting to watch as the NFL rights negotiations will be. And I don't want to read anyone's mind. I certainly don't have that capability, but it does seem like if anyone sees this this trend uh, evolving before their eyes, it's Rupert Murdoch who seems to want to consolidate these Fox assets. It, certainly, if there's a loser in all this, it's Fox, which staked its company's entire uh, reason for being on the notion that news and sports would prevail forever. If sports can matriculate to streaming, you better believe that news will be able to one day too. Anyway, Dylan, cocktail hour is approaching. What is on tap for you tonight at the home bar in Los Angeles? Oh, God, that's a great question. As I've told Peter many times, I'm just increasingly finding myself with, with a martini. <laughs> because you know why? Are you, are you a, a dry martini guy or are you a, a, a dirty martini guy? Dirty martinis are coming back into vogue, apparently. The creme de la creme for me is still the dry martini, gin martini, two to one ratio with a twist. But I appreciate the dirty martini renaissance because A, I love making cocktails and there's all sorts of experimentation and variations you can do there. And then, you know, B, it's just, it's also just a damn good drink. What about you, John? What are you having? I'm with you. I've sort of segued to, to vodka martinis uh, later in life, but I am uh, originally a gin martini drinker, but always the the older English drinks. When I was very young in my career, there was a legendary editor named Wayne Lawson, who was the executive literary editor of Vanity Fair. He had this like totally Eleanor Roosevelt uh, Oyster Bay accent, even though he was from Wisconsin. And uh, he would always take out the kids who were you know making $22,000 a year, which I was one. And uh, you'd go to like, 
not just the Sardis of the world, but also you know, some really, really uh, fancy dinners. In fact, we used to go to Sparks Steakhouse where um, John Gotti killed Paul Castellano uh, for a mob enthusiast. And he would always order a beef eater martini, very, very, very dry, up with a twist. And I would be 21 years old sitting next to him, taking that in and think, geez, I want exactly what that guy's having. So that's my drink. And I'm <laughs> sure I'll be having one of those tonight too. So cheers. Cheers to you too. I'm glad you could participate for once in your own reporting on Media Monday. <laughs> and I'll, uh, I'll see you in the Slack channel, man. All right. Thank you, John. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.